Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Our theme for October is heritage. And I'll be talking this month about the past and the present and, you know, some ways toward a possible future for First Unitarian Society. When I consider the history of ideas or institutions, one of my questions always is, what is the through line? What is the why of an idea a concept or an institution. In the case of First Unitarian Society, what has been of central importance for the people here since 1881? What is it from then till now? I spend my time on this with you because human life is so short, human memory is so short, that we lose valuable details just with the passing of time if we don't share them. We lose the history of what makes us, us. Micro-history, I suppose we can call it, because I'm looking at details, the details of larger events, because that reveals the humanity in the events. And by so looking, we discover that it isn't the giants of the earth that make the difference around, but just like people just like us. Last week, I stuck with the abstract concept of change as a through line for First Unitarian Society. Our people have always believed in change, personal, religious, and social. In the terminology of theology, this ability to change both self and society is called human agency. It answers the questions, what can a human being do in this reality? What can we actually achieve? Now, the growing concern among several Protestant denominations that being religious meant that you had to bring the kingdom of God down to this earth. This became a central concern in the late 19th century. We call it the social gospel movement, and it's really the moment of separation between what we call fundamentalism that would eventually become the evangelical uh, end of Christianity and the liberal religious end of Christianity. That was beginning to pop apart uh, in the late 19th century, and you were a liberal, and therefore what was known at the time as a modernist, or you were a fundamentalist at that time. So what is going to happen in this religious landscape? And that is where First Unitarian Society comes from. According to the Articles of Incorporation from 1881, and yeah, you don't want to try to read that, right? <laughs> yes, uh, typewriters weren't quite common yet, but it called the purpose of FUS to form an association where people without regard to theological differences may unite for mutual helpfulness 
in intellectual, moral, and religious culture and humane work. That was the stated goals of incorporation in 1881. Without regard to theological differences, that's the one I want to think about today. Now, there's more than one way to disregard theological differences, of course. Which ways offer possibility and potential for the kind of thing that's going to develop at First Unitarian Society, and what would not be that? What would become more of the mainline religious institutions? In the late 19th century, the U.S., uh, in the Midwest, right here, there was a whole lot of uniting going on in those days. All right. The reason for that is that as Euro-Americans moved toward the West, and this was the West in those days, as they moved West, they were looking at cheap land, and religion was not one of the things they were all that worried about. So Presbyterians went west, Unitarians went west, Universalists went west, and they didn't check um, where the local church was when they started off. So they met up often in the middle of nowhere, uh, somewhere out there, and there was no social life for them because social life revolved around the church in the 19th century and into the early 20th century in the United States. So here they are, and they decide they're going to you know, build a church. And you find these all over rural communities still, the Union Church, where several different denominations went together to build a church in order for them to have a place, and then they had to divvy up the, and share what times they would meet. Now, the bigger ones uh, moved out fairly quickly and built nice big 19th century monstrosities of bricks, right? And the smaller ones stuck together. And that tended to be then what the Unitarians and the Universalists were doing as smaller groups that were sticking together. And that's the kind of uniting that I'm talking about going on. So without regard to theological differences then, meant something in 1881 that it may not mean in 2023, but I do think that it's an interesting question is what were they talking about and what, what should we be talking about? Should we be talking about the same sort of thing? And the way I want to go about talking about that is to jump to 1905. Now, Edwin Stanton Hodgen was the second minister at First Unitarian Society. He was born in Vermilion, South Dakota, which I don't know. Anyone know where that is? Ruth knows where that is. You know where, okay, all right. I knew Ruth was from over there somewhere, but okay. Well, he died in 1956, and he was the senior minister here from 1905 to 1909. Now, he wanted to go to Harvard, but uh, the University of South Dakota was not considered a university yet, and so they wouldn't let him matriculate at Harvard because it was not an accredited university. So he went to my alma mater, Meadville, all right? Well, not long ago, uh, one of the members of our archives committee was looking around at rare books, and by golly, a book that he wrote uh, was uh, for sale. It is E. Stanton Hodgen, Confessions of an Agnostic Clergyman, A Lifelong Search for a Satisfying Faith, Beacon Press, 1948. 
So, needless to say, we had to get that for the archives. And uh, some of these days, you may want to join the archives committee too. There you go. So he was invited as a candidate in 1905 to fill the, um, the space left by Henry Simmons, who was our first settled minister here. Uh, I'll talk about him in, a, uh, in the coming weeks. He was the first settled minister at First uh, Unitarian in Madison, Wisconsin, and then he came here uh, to help form this congregation. Right? So Hodgen wrote of the people of FUS in 1905 that they were, quote, on the march, people unsatisfied with the present order and strenuously searching for something new, end quote. So, change-making, as I was saying last week. First thing he notices about the people here. Now, for a little bit of background, those of you who are not history buffs, 1905, Teddy Roosevelt was the president, and the city of Minneapolis had 46,000 people in it. So about 10% of the number that we have today. So a smaller city, all right? Now, speaking of the Minneapolis of 1905, Rev. Hudgen wrote this, those who wanted a liberal church with the emphasis on church could readily find a home in one of the Universalist societies. There were four of them at that time, all right? There were, however, he writes, uh, a goodly number who were not theological nor ecclesiastical, but were nonetheless religious and who desired religious nurture. These drew together into a distinctly secular organization called the Liberal League. This was the forerunner of the Unitarian Society that has not lost its secular character in more than 60 years of its existence. He was writing this in 1947. All right. So pronouncedly non-ecclesiastical in character was the society when I first appeared on the scene that some of the members would not enter the auditorium until after the short preliminary service was over. <laughs> this, 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 this continues, some of you know, for some time, so that up there in the balcony used to be the martini and cigarette section, right? Uh, so, so... This has been going on for more yet for a few years now. When I introduced a simple responsive service, it was vigorously opposed by a few, although it was wholly ethical in character. Two-thirds of it being selections from the writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose bust occupied a niche in one corner of the auditorium. So even Emerson was too religious. All right. The only time in my ministry that I seemed to lean toward conservatism was during my stay in Minneapolis. <laughs> and and if any, uh, any of you have been around here for a while, you too have felt this. Um, sometimes you just feel conservative here. Right? Now, I want to notice a few things about these observations that he made, all right? A small thing, but an important through line is he used the term auditorium in 1905. From the first, FUS has not had a sanctuary. And the telling remark, the Unitarian society that has not lost its secular character in the more than 60 years of its existence, that me we have always called things differently. 
All right. We have always had songbooks in an upper and lower auditorium since we've been in here, etc. Now, yes, that's silly. Um, the seven words we can't say uh, is one of the things that we joke about. Uh, it's silly and it's not silly if you really want to underline the fact of complete secularity, right, which people here have always wanted to do, right? What is this, then, this religious that he speaks of? He says, a goodly number who were not theological nor ecclesiastical, but were nevertheless religious and who desired a desired religious nurture. So it's wholly ethical in, cult, in, in its nature. It's secular. But these people are looking for something religious. So what the heck did that mean at the time? So let's look back at the Articles of Incorporation here. It's to form an association where people without regard to theological differences, without regard, may unite for mutual helpfulness in intellectual, moral, and religious culture and humane work. All right. Now, religious culture. It, it, we don't really use that term in contemporary English. It's an odd phrasing, as a matter of fact, which says to me that the people who wrote it back then in 1881 or so were attempting to incorporate some sort of new idea into what they were trying to talk about, religious culture. All right. Now, I know that uh, I'm always going on about the changes in language, but they do reveal things when we begin to look how words and phrases change over time. It's important, I think, to know the original intent, even if you're not a Supreme Court justice trying to rewrite laws. It's good to know the original intent, even if you ignore it, which is sometimes the best thing to do. The term culture took on radical new meanings in the late 19th century. Earlier in time, the term culture had meant uh, something like, we say cultured nowadays, right? As in high culture, right? Haute couture, right? in that phrase. We still have it, but it, we don't use it as much as we once did. But the new discipline of anthropology at that time was broadening the term culture into different ways of thinking about different groups and cultures. We put an S on the end of it in the late 19th century. And we talked about cultures being cultured or not cultured. It wasn't nice of us to do that, of anthropologists spreading across the world, but that was coming back into the way of thinking in those days. In 1881, the people of FUS were congregating for the purpose of mutual helpfulness in looking at religious culture, meaning, I think, basically what we nowadays mean by the philosophy of religion. Well, I mean, nowadays it's a whole academic um, field of interest, but the philosophy of religion, I think, is what they really meant by religious culture. And herein lies a fundamental, pun intended, a fundamental difference between Unitarian thinking as a through line and the way Unitarian Universalism developed other places in the United States. We always 
have retained a fundamental skepticism about what we would call revealed religion. In other words, we don't tend to believe in it, right? Universalists at the beginning of the 20th century still um, thought that Christian and Hebrew scriptures were to be regarded in high regard as probably the highest regard. Uh, Many Unitarians, however, began to think that scripture, all of scripture, from Christian to Confucian, was human-made, was made up by human beings. That is a fundamental change in the way that people were thinking in the late 19th century. This is part of my thinking concerning our religious education here. We always have had a fundamental difference between how we in the Unitarian strain thought and the way the Universalist strain thought. Over time, we adopted the Unitarian Universalist curricula, but it never did fit with our more secular families. That's part of the through line of what First Unitarian is about. From an old line Unitarian perspective, there is no beyond human truth. That is essential to Unitarian thinking. There is no beyond human thought. Now, we don't always know what we're thinking, <laughs> but we, don't, we just don't see that, that it goes beyond that, it, it, we, that we trust in the human conversation, the den of conversation, as I call it, to reach out and find our truths. It's a very important distinction. I will try to make it a little clearer. The people who formed the original congregation did not join for the purpose of religion, but for religious culture because they were secular freethinkers. They were secular freethinkers. That's what the, the Liberal League was. It was pronouncedly secular. Religion for them meant the Lutheran state churches, the, uh, the Germans, the Scandinavian, and the Roman Catholic state churches of Europe of the day that they had just left. That was religion. But religious culture meant the broader universal experiences and emotions that human beings have in relation to the mystery, the big, the great, the cosmos, as Walt Whitman called it. Religious culture is about the emotional and ethical responses human beings have to our reality. That's the difference. The philosopher John Dewey summarized this in his uh, 1935 book, Common Faith, which I'm sure Rev. Hodgson had read by the time he wrote his memoir, although it wasn't, hadn't been written when he was here. John Dewey, a founding humanist, believed that religious, O-U-S, right, religious feelings and experiences are not exclusive to any human group. It is a human emotion that is across the board, is the way he thought of it. But he also thought that religious meant being aware of everything around us all the time, from day to day, moment to moment. This is uh, a class that I'm teaching at uh, United Theological Seminary. This, uh, this term, as a matter of fact, called Humanist Aesthetics and Practices. It talks about how do we live as humanists in a day-to-day way. John Dewey taught that the religious aspect of human thought ought to be nurtured and celebrated 
because it contributes to a shared sense of community and understanding. It has usefulness as an emotion, this religious impulse. And that's where religious culture is going from the concept of John Dewey and around there. The free thinkers of 1881 would become the humanists here of 1916 and 1935 who celebrated a common faith based on shared human experiences and no religious doctrine at all. As I put it nowadays, people matter more than ideas. Rev Hodgson phrased it this way, I prefer to sweep aside all these vain expostulations wizardly institutions, genuflections and entreaties, leaving in place of them something much more meaningful and expressive, silence. <laughs> if you can't improve on silence, just shut up, preacher. <laughs> but you can see the good old free thinker right there, right? Vain expostulations. Wizardly institutions, right? Genuflections and entreaties, leaving in place of them something much more meaningful and expressive. Silence. Well, what are the takeaways from my little look at this one person from our past? We have had 10 settled senior ministers since then. The average... Uh, time span is 14 years, so ministers tend to like this place. We've only had 10 since, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty good. The average minister lasts three, four years in most places, right? So. Now, one conclusion is that the society is itself a study in the development of what it would look like for a group from the 19th century freethinkers to go into the 20th century humanists and into the 21st century... What are we going to call ourselves? I don't know. Maybe not humanist. It, it's not going to be me, right? It's going to be this gathered group that it will create the next movement from where we have been. It's not up to me. It's the collective consciousness of the people of First Unitarian Society. So, what are the through lines? I think there are several. The people of FUS have always insisted upon the secular ahead of the religious. The secular ahead of the religious. We're absolute on the church and state thing, but it goes further than that. We think as secular people. Right? We think as secular people, even though we also think as religious people, and that's a very fine distinction. The people of FUS have always insisted that the secular is religious, right? And time is bearing this out. More and more people are realizing this simple fact. When we talk about decolonizing Christianity, what we're talking about is getting rid of those assumptions that have built up over time, right? We gave them up a long time ago. If you're creedless, you're halfway there. The people of FUS have remained of two minds concerning formal ritual. That, too, is true. You know, we still have people who object to having one sort of religious symbol in the building, the chalice, right? We do that, but it is a little odd. It is a ritual. And we do have people who still wonder about that. All right. 
We have questioned it because one, we, well, is that a, is, are, are we doing woo-woo here? Is that, is it, are, are you trying to conjure something, you know? But we also know that there are positive aspects to ritual, and that's always been a tension for, for us. When is it manipulative and when does it make things more real? And that will always be a question, I think. The people of FUS have always insisted upon deep, systemic social change. He was very careful when he arrived in 1905 to recognize women who ran the congregation as much as men. Right? There was no awareness of gender at that time, which was pretty forward-thinking. From the beginning, the people of FUS have assumed gender equality, right? And I think that's why we are at the forefront of transgender rights today, right? We're always on the move, as he said. And my topic last week, change. We believe in change for ourselves, and we believe that everyone should have the opportunity to change. That's a far-off dream in this nation, Yet it's the hope and purpose our forebears strove toward, and we must live with it. We must live for that hope and that purpose. Everyone in our society must have the opportunity to change and to feel that those choices are made in freedom. We here assert that religious and philosophical traditions were created by human beings, and people matter more than those ideas do. Whatever your tradition, always. We assert that a life of meaning and purpose is a life of service to the common good. In the decade that I have served FUS, the number of people meeting the description of none, none of the above, no religion, has grown exponentially in this decade. It's now 30% of Americans who say that they are religiously unaffiliated, and half of those claim to be atheist agnostic. So roughly 15%. Those people are and always have been the people who gather at First Unitarian Society. In 1881, in 1905, in 1950, we were a few. We're always gonna be a few. Now, we're a little more few, but we're still that small group. When I became a humanist in the 1970s, fewer than 1% of the U.S. population claimed to be atheist agnostic. Fewer than 1%. And now, some people think it's up to 25%. Not huge numbers, but growing numbers. We must honor the FUS past when we search for the essences of what created and sustained this congregation all these years years. By so doing, we avoid the anxiety that often accompanies considerations of the future. We are creating the future, and this institution is one of the few places that can do that. We have been on the cutting edge of religious thinking since the beginning. First Unitarian Society is unique. It was unique when it began in 1881. It was unique when it voted to call a humanist minister in 1916. It was unique in having carried the banner of 19th century free thought through the 20th century into humanism and into the 21st century. And no, I don't think we know what to call it yet. 
the through line. Perhaps Rev Hodgen got it right when he wrote this. Striving and straining for complete answers to life's unanswerable questions, pursuing theological promises of perfection, is like following the will-o'-the-wisp that lures us off into the bogs of oblivion. <laughs> will-o'-the-wisp, jack-o'-lantern was another term for that phosphorescence that people thought were dead spirits, following them off the path. Well, I think that's pretty clear what he thought. Since 1881 and before, the people of FUS have been at the cutting edge of religious thought. Just as in the case of human beings, a congregation is what it is because it was what it was. And it will be what it will be because it is what it is. Today, we invite all like-minded, independent thinkers to join us in our search for life and life abundant for, as they called it in the first Humanist Manifesto, a shared life in a shared world. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.